0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. This is a privilege. It's a privilege, Lord, that we live in a country where we have the freedom of assembly We have the freedom of worship, it's what this great country was founded upon, but uh, even greater than the freedom to worship according to the dictates of our own heart, we worship according to the dictates of your revealed word. We feel like we have been on holy ground as we have been at the shadow of the cross And week by week, taking a different scene, we feel ourselves standing next to John and Mary and the other women, gazing up the large stones of the city behind us, the olive trees around us, the horrible sounds of agony before us, and we consider the one who paid the price on our behalf. Many of us, most of us, are familiar Some of us may not be with this scene, but help us all, be gracious to all as we enter into it and we consider afresh the work of Jesus for us. It's in His name we pray, amen. A few years back I had the privilege of visiting London and going to the church of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, of course he's (laughs) been long gone. And the church itself has been destroyed and rebuilt. It was destroyed by a fire and other events that happened. But the facade of the Metropolitan Tabernacle is still intact in some of the auxiliary buildings. The main sanctuary itself is there, but it's not the same as it was in Spurgeon's day. Um, I stood in that pulpit and I just imagined what it was like to be listening over a hundred years ago to Charles Haddon's First, and he really had the first mega church in the eighteen hundreds, it sat five thousand people. No PA system. So the way it was constructed, I hear, was there were three levels. There was a ground level, then there was a balcony level that went all the way around, and then there was a third balcony that also went all the way around. The pulpit was constructed in an unusual manner. It was at the second balcony level, so you'd walk up. A stairway from the first level to the second balcony and jutting out over the main floor and at the level of the second balcony was the pulpit from which Spurgeon would preach and then he could even look up to the third level. Well, Spurgeon had not only a church, but he had a pastor's college. He taught young men in the ministry. And he believed that young men in the ministry should be taught the art of extemporaneous preaching. That is, you give them a text and they're ready at any moment to think on their feet, to be led by the Spirit, that they should know enough Bible truth to be able to be given a passage and preach. So often in his midweek studies, Spurgeon would hand a sheet of paper to one of the students in his school who were sitting in the congregation. The only prep time they would have to give the message is the time from their seat up the stairs to the pulpit and preach. On a midweek service, Charles Spurgeon scribbled Luke 19, Story of Zacchaeus, on a sheet of paper, and it was handed to one of the young college students. The only time he had to prepare was a few songs in the song service, and his journey from his seat up to the pulpit. How intimidating it would be to be given a passage of Scripture, stand in front of an audience of people, and speak on it, and especially intimidating when Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was in the front row looking up at you. The young man who was given the text on Zacchaeus from Luke 19 was himself a short fellow, So he climbed up the stairs into the pulpit and he said, The text that I have been given to preach on this evening is the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. And like our eloquent pastor has taught us so well, I have three points to bring to bear on this passage. Point number one, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, just like I am a wee little man. Point number two, Zacchaeus was up a tree, even as I myself am up a tree. And point number three, the Lord looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree and I feel that's what the Lord is telling me. And he scampered out of the pulpit immediately. (laughs) He was a clever student. And to the delight and the applause of the congregation, he made an impression. I thought of that when I was standing in Spurgeon's pulpit. And I thought of another pulpit I had seen and wondered about in Edinburgh, Scotland, the pulpit of John Knox, the Scottish reformer, St. Giles Cathedral on the Royal Mile. And knowing what I know about Knox and how clear and even scathingly he preached. And I thought of some of the sermons against Mary, the Queen of Scots, preached from that pulpit and how that got him into trouble time and time again during that era. But the greatest pulpit ever was constructed from two pieces of wood hastily put together in the form of a cross. Jesus the greatest preacher who ever lived preached the greatest sermon ever heard from that pulpit that he was nailed to for six hours. He gave seven short statements. Short statements, but big ideas. Monumental thoughts of forgiveness and provision and salvation. John records three of the statements that Jesus made from the cross. The third statement, the fifth statement, and the sixth statement made on the cross, John records, and we will consider the sixth statement made in verse 30 of chapter 19. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I don't know about you and your life and your organizational skills, but for me, just to read, it is finished, brings a sense of conviction. Do any of you have unfinished projects in your life? I mean, I I automatically go to the leaves in my backyard under all those bushes. I'm going to get to them. But I just haven't yet. Or my garage, boy, it's collected lots of junk and it needs organization and cleaning. I'm going to get to it, just don't know when. I have a closet that I've just stuffed junk in. It's like my one little closet that I can get to someday. The day hasn't arrived yet. I'm waiting for the day. Unfinished tasks, unfinished business. Um, We're getting to tax season. This year, I'm not going to file for an extension. I want to get it done. In fact, we have a, we have a, a, a phrase that has been coined in our culture. It's sort of a, a blue-collar phrase. And when we have one guy trying to tell another guy to finish the task, we say, get her done. Yeah, I'm going to do that. We'll get her done. On the cross, Jesus said the words, It is finished. Now, in hearing the words... To the uninitiated, it might sound like, well, that is typical of anyone dying. It's the end of his life. It's finished. It's over. I'm out of here. I'm dying. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm finished, as if my life is over. He's not saying, we're finished, as if to say, all that I have worked for and invested in the last few years, it's done now. He said, it is finished. What does he mean by that? You should also know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke add an important notation. It says, when Jesus cried out, and it doesn't say what he cried out, only John does. When he cried out, then he dismissed his spirit and he died. What Jesus cried out was, it is finished. These are not the words of a victim, these are the words of a victor. This is somebody who has crossed the finish line and says, it is done. Well, we want to consider that single statement and this single verse in John chapter 19. I want to look with you, first of all, at the statement itself, then at the speaker, then at the significance. The statement that Jesus made, it is finished. The statement is meaningful. Three words in English, one word in Greek. It is finished is the translation of the single word in Greek, tetelestai, tetelestai, or teleos. It means to complete, to bring to an end, to accomplish, or to perfect. All of that is embodied in the word. You really don't get the gist of the depth of the meaning, so I want to take you back in history, allow me to do that, as I tell you four different ways it was used in antiquity, four different groups that used the term and how fitting then it is for Jesus to say. First of all, servants used the term. In a day of slavery 2,000 years ago, when a servant did a task, accomplished something that the master asked him to do, he would go back to the master and give the announcement to Telestai. In other words, Master, I've done everything you've told me to do. I brought to an end the job you gave me to do. It's accomplished. It's done. How fitting then. Because Isaiah the prophet, on four different occasions, predicted that Jesus the Messiah would be God's ultimate servant. He speaks about the servant of the Lord, who accomplishes the task of the Master. Even Jesus himself, when he comes on the scene in the Gospel of Mark, he makes this announcement. That the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Even when he was a little boy, 12 years of age at the temple, he tells his mother, Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? I'm like a servant on a mission, accomplishing the will of the Master, saying, It's done. It's finished. It's finished. So servants used it. A second group that used the term tetelestai, the word, or the equivalent of the word, were the priests. You know, if you and I lived a couple thousand years ago or three thousand years ago when there was a temple or a tabernacle, if you wanted to bring an animal for sacrifice, you couldn't just get any old animal. You couldn't like say, hey, there's like a stray cat in the back of the house. Let's just bring that. I've always wanted to get rid of that thing. Let's just bring that for a sacrifice couldn't be done. First of all, it had to be a lamb. Exodus 12 says that the lamb had to be a male lamb without blemish. So you would bring your lamb to the priest. The priest would examine your lamb. He would look for flaws, inherent or acquired. If there were no flaws, he would say the equivalent in Aramaic or in Hebrew, the equivalent of the Greek, tetelestai. It's perfect. It's a suitable lamb for sacrifice. Again, how fitting that Jesus would say to Telestai. For Peter says, you and I were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot, without blemish. You know that even Jesus' enemies knew that he was perfect? You know that the Sanhedrin had to hire false witnesses to bring false accusations against Jesus because he did nothing wrong. Even Pilate said several times, I find no fault in him. Even Judas Iscariot admitted, I have betrayed innocent blood. There's a third group of people that used it. Artists used the term to tetelestai. When an artist was making a painting or a sculpture, when the artist was done, he or she would step back from the work of art. And if it was completed, all the color was there, all the detail, all the finishing touches, and a good craftsman put detail and touch in it, he or she would step back and say, "To Tetelestai, it is finished. The picture is complete, was the idea. The picture is complete. Hey, when I read the Old Testament, I find lots of details, lots of touches, lots of prophecies about the Messiah, shadows, ceremonies, lots of stuff. But when I read it, I get the idea that something's missing. The picture is not complete. It's predicting something that hasn't come yet. But when I read the New Testament and Jesus steps into the picture, now the picture is complete. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, I came to fulfill. To complete the picture. So the picture is now all completed. There's a fourth group that used the term merchants and bankers. Once you paid off your bill or your debt to the bank or to a merchant, they would give you a little sheet that would read at the top to In fact, did you know that we have found, not we, not like I've done it, but archaeologists have found, scholars have found papyri, ancient papyri, for people who have paid their taxes off. And across the top of the papyrus, it reads, Tetelestai, paid in full, was the idea, paid in full. So merchants or bankers would use the term tetelestai to simply say your debt has been paid off in full. How fitting for Jesus to say it from the cross. Because, I don't know if you know this or not, most of you do, we are debtors. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's an insurmountable debt. You can never pay that. You're bankrupt. The wages of sin is... Death. So we have a debt we can't pay, and we look at this huge pile of debt, it's like, there's no way I can pay that off. Jesus comes along and announces from the cross, paid in full. It's done. Tetelestai. So as the servant, he's fulfilling the wishes of his master. As the priest, he's offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. As the artist, he's completing the picture. And he's paying off in full our debt. The statement is meaningful. The second thing in looking back at the text is just hearing the statement as we read it. It tells us something about the speaker himself, that here's a man who lived with purpose, with goals, with priorities. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He lived with purpose. He lived with priorities. And those priorities, that goal, comes out in so many other statements that he made in his life. Here's one. Remember the time when Jesus goes to Samaria and he goes to the well of Samaria and there's that woman at the well of Samaria and Jesus talks with her. The disciples have gone into the town to buy food. They get back. The woman leaves to tell her friends and family what's happening. The disciples, knowing that Jesus is tired like they are and needs something to eat, they say, here's some food. You ought to eat it. And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And they look at each other like, what does that mean? Did somebody like give me a hamburger while we were gone? Excuse me, a falafel while we were gone? And Jesus explains himself. For my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. To do it and to finish it. I'm living with a purpose. I have a goal. I am on track. I am going somewhere. And I live by priorities. And I'm going to finish the task. Fast forward to John chapter 17. we reviewed it in depth. The high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus lifts up his eyes and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He knows he's right at the end. He has hours left to live. Everything the Father has given him, and now he anticipates the end of it. And he said, I've finished the work. Then look down at our text and go back to verse 28 and notice these words again, if you will. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things are now, What? It says accomplished. Same word, teleos. Accomplished. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. Same word, teleos. He says, I thirst. He drinks it. And then he says, to It is finished. Here's a man who lived and spoke and moved with purpose. He had goals in mind. And now he's saying, it's done. I was reading a magazine. I was on the way back from Dallas, Texas a while back. and The magazine cover had an article entitled, The Power to Excel. And it was an article about several books out on finding the goals that you set in life. So I read the article and read some of the titles of the book. And if memory serves me, the books were called, The Power of Purpose. Iron Will, Self-Discipline, The Magnificent Obsession, The Physiotherapy of Achievement. All of these books, and they basically had the same idea all the way through them. Here's the idea. If you want to be successful in life, say these authors, you number one, set a goal. Number two, you make concrete steps to achieve your goal. And number three, you evaluate those steps along the way, objectively. So I was thinking about that, that this whole philosophy about achieving your goal. And I thought, how different from Jesus? Oh, he had his goals and he had the steps to get there. And he evaluated those steps. But, but how different? Because Jesus' whole life and goal and purpose was not for self, was not self-oriented, was not self-centered, was not for self-aggrandizement, but for the Father. It was all about pouring his life out for others according to the will of the Father so that at the end of his life he could say, it is finished. I have a question for you. How can anyone say it is finished after three and a half years of ministry? Three and a half years. That's a very short span to do much of anything. But after three and a half years on the cross, he says, it's done. It's finished. Everything you've given me to do, I've accomplished. Now, Jesus, I grant you, did many wonderful things. He healed many people. But for every person he healed, there were 10 unhealed people. There were still broken lives and broken bodies throughout all of Israel, let alone the world. So how can you say at the end of three and a half years, I've done it all. Here's how. Because he said, I've done everything you have given me to do, Father. This is what you have called me to do. Here's my goal. Here's my priority. And that's it. So the goals he was accomplishing were goals given to him by the Father. And number two, he evaluated those goals in the light of eternity, not the temporary. Boy, I tell you what, if we can grab a hold of that, there's freedom in that. What has God called you to do? In fact, this is a good time to ask yourself, what are your goals in life? How's the spiritual goal thing coming for you? How's the seek first the kingdom of God going? What are your goals? What are you pursuing? Is it worth it? And what are you going to do when you achieve it? I read a statement made by Lewis Ferry Schaefer, the one-time president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He said, He said that he had a friend who chased so many insignificant things in life. He said, it reminds me of a bulldog chasing a freight train. I wonder what he's going to do when he catches it. What's the dog going to do when he catches the train? Attack it? When you achieve your goal, what then? Is it worth the pursuit? I guarantee you, if you have the right goals, it's well worth the pursuit. Let me tell you a little... Illustration that might help you arrange your goals and think about it this week. In Milan, Italy, there is a cathedral. And there's an entrance to the cathedral that has three doors on the same wall. It's a three-portal entryway. And over every doorway, each of the three, there's an inscription above it. So as you're going up the steps into the cathedral, over the right-hand portal... It says, all that pleases is but for a moment. On the left-hand portal is inscribed, all that troubles is but for a moment. Over the main, the largest, the central door, the central archway are these words. Nothing is important except that which is eternal. Everything that pleases, everything that troubles is so momentary. The most important goals you can make and set are eternal goals, spiritual goals. Here is Jesus, a man of purpose who lived his whole life for the goal of pleasing the Father and pouring out his life saying, after three and a half years of ministry, accomplished, done, it is finished. Now, Finally, I want to look at the significance of the statement. The significance is wonderful. but We still haven't really answered the question. It is finished. What is it? If it is finished, it doesn't mean I am finished or we are finished or this movement is finished. He says it is finished. What does he mean by it? What's finished exactly? Well, first of all, Jesus' suffering is about over. That's about to come to an end. Man has done his worst. They pinned him on a cross. They beat him up with a whip. They put a crown of thorns. Judas betrayed him. All of that is over now. In a few moments, he'll be cradled in the arms of his father. Finished are the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. Momentarily, he'll be with his father. The second thing that is finished is the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Now, Do you know that the Old Covenant predicted, anticipated the New Covenant? Jeremiah 30, God said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with my people. And so the writer of Hebrews says, God takes away the first that he might establish the second. That's the New Covenant. So the Old Covenant is finished. And boy, am I glad. Because as I read just the Old Testament without the grace... See, that's what it says in John chapter 1. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As I read the law of the Old Testament, it's like, it's like looking at a policeman with his finger pointed at me. You went too fast. You didn't make the turn right. You were texting as you drive. Not that I do that. I read the Bible. I read the Old Testament. And all of these, you shall not. You shall not. You shall do this. You shall not. And I go... Blown it, blown it, blown it, blown it. Because the law points its finger and says, you haven't kept God's perfect standard. The law is like looking at a mirror. We hate mirrors. And that's why we we want the mirrors that have the lights that are placed just so. Maybe on the side, maybe a little bit lower, maybe shining up just a little bit. And that's the mirror we want for our house because it brings flattering light to us. We go, why? I I don't look so bad. I look good. (laughs) You read the law of God, it won't flatter anyone. It tells you the truth and it says basically, spiritually, you're ugly. I'm ugly. We're all hopeless. So the very law that is the mirror and that points at your wrong... At the same time, has no power to do anything about it. Just like the mirror in your bathroom can't cleanse you. You never take it off the wall and start scrubbing with the mirror. It has no power to do that. It just simply says, here's the truth about you. So I am glad that the old covenant is done, it's finished, and we have the new covenant. The grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. Every now and then I meet a person who says, Well, you know, I, I live by the Ten Commandments. I love those conversations. Really? you live by yep. I live by the Ten Commandments. That's, that's my religion. So you're telling me you haven't broken the Ten Commandments? Oh no, well. I mean I've broken a few of them. I've lied. I stole something when I was younger. Uh, taking the Lord's name in vain. I've done that a few times. But I've never murdered anybody. Okay, but you admit you are a lawbreaker because the Bible says if you offend in one, you're guilty of breaking all of it. You're a lawbreaker. So you say you live by the Ten Commandments, you just don't keep them. Well, and then I've had people say, well, you know, I'm really good at sort of talking my way out of things, and I figure that i am done my best, and when I see God face to face, I can sort of talk my way through this. Can I just say that's a bad plan? It's a really bad plan. The best plan is to let the law go, the old covenant go, embrace the new covenant of free forgiveness and grace. You receive Christ as your Savior and let it be done. It is finished. Brings us to the fourth and final thing. And it really the crux. Here's the center of what Jesus meant when He said it is finished. Our redemption, our salvation is done. It's finished. You can't add to it. You can't improve upon it. And it's not a joint effort. It's not like, well, God, you do your part and I'll do my part. You know what your part is? Believe. That's your part. They asked Jesus, what must we do to work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. That's your part. Cool story. A guy came to an evangelist named Alexander Wooten. He was an eccentric evangelist years ago. And he said, using the biblical phrase, what must I do to be saved? And Alexander Wooten looked at him and said, it's too late. The man was shocked. It's too late? You mean I can't do anything? Wooten said, it's too late. It's already been done. You can't do anything. It's already been done for you. The only thing left for you to do is to believe that it's done. It's a finished work. You don't add to it. You believe by faith. And when you come that way, your life will change. But you come that way, it's done. It is finished. To tell us die. Our redemption, our salvation is done. Now, finish out the verse. I noticed something that I found peculiar I want to share with you. At the end of verse thirty it says, And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You know why that's a little odd? Because that's different from how you and I would die. If we were standing up or pinned to something or sitting in a chair with our head erect It would read this, he died and then bowed his head. Once you die, the head would slump forward, but not with Jesus. He bowed his head first, then he died. It tells me his head has been erect the entire time, and I did a little investigation. The way the word is rendered in the original, it's Jesus put his head, nestled his head downward. It wasn't a slump. It was a, a deliberate, slow placing of the head. And so it says in bowing his head, he gave up, gave up, dismissed is the literal word, dismissed his spirit. So here's Jesus on the cross. He bows his head slightly and he says to his spirit, you can go now. And that, that's exactly what he said would happen. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and to take it up again. And here is Jesus laying it down, placing his head downward, dismissing his spirit, and dying. So here's the deal God finishes everything he starts. He's not like me in my garage, and my leaves, and my closet, and my taxes. God finishes everything he starts. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Have you ever thought of joy on a cross? You know what the joy was for Jesus? Being able to say to you and me, you're forgiven. Come hang with me for eternity. That brought him joy. I believe the first taste of that joy is when he said to the man next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Talk about being in the right place. At the right time. That man got it. You'll be with me in paradise. You know what? You're in the right place. At the right time. Because, although it's a finished work, some of you have unfinished business with God. He's given you the offer of forgiveness. The only thing missing is you haven't received it. He's given you the gift of eternal life. You just haven't personalized it yet. What he's done is finished. But you have unfinished business with God. Let me end with a true story. 1829, George Wilson. Convicted of murder. He was robbing the U.S. mail. He killed a federal worker. He was arrested and sentenced to execution by hanging. That's how they did it then. Some of his friends appealed to the president, at that time Andrew Jackson, to release George Wilson. To the shock of everybody, Andrew Jackson signed his release. He wrote with his own hands that that man was a free man, signed a pardon. But the criminal, George Wilson, according to history, would not accept the pardon. So now the president, Andrew Jackson, turns to the Supreme Court to make the decision. Chief Justice John Marshall puts forth a rendering that would become historic. John Marshall said, a pardon has no value unless it is accepted by the criminal. A pardon has no value unless it is accepted by the sinner. Jesus was willing to say, it is finished But not everybody is willing to say, I believe. So finish the business. Father, we thank You that we have been able to consider a single statement, a single word, pregnant with significance, filled with meaning and application, showing us that our Savior lived with that goal set by You and moved toward the accomplishment of that goal until He could say, It's done. Thank You, Lord, that it is so complete that none of us can improve upon it or add to it. We can simply believe that it has been done for us and come to You by faith. If you've come this morning... And you have not finished that business with God. You have not received Jesus as your Savior. It's not personal. Some of you come to church. Some of you love church. Some of you love the songs. You love being around people who love the Lord. You just haven't, you haven't made a personal commitment to Christ yourself. That's what's lacking. Know that the gift is extended, that the forgiveness is offered, but it must be received or it is invalid for you. How monumental that every day, after week, after month, after decade, we're given chances to respond to the gospel. More amazing that so many people don't. And now today, you're in the right place at the right time. And God is knocking on the door of your heart again. Some of you remember... A decision made in years past. Not followed through. Not, you're not following Jesus. But you want to come back to Him. Or you need to come to Him to begin with. It's not about being religious. It's not about joining a church. It's about knowing Him. And if you are willing to do that as He is willing to receive you, as our heads are bowed and we're praying, I'd like to pray for you. I need to know who you are. And if you're willing to turn your life to Christ today, would you raise your hand up in the air so I can see it. I'll acknowledge you and I'll pray for you. And we will as well. A couple of you way in the back. God bless you. Right in the middle. God bless you. Anyone else? Raise your hand up. Slip it up. Don't be afraid. God bless you, sir. On my right. Right up in the front. Lord, it's our prayer for people around this auditorium. You know them by name. You know every thought they have ever thought. You know their deepest need even at this point. And how happy, how thrilled you are at this moment to receive them to become children of God. And so we pray for, for each hand, each life that is represented by the hand. And we pray that, we pray, Father, that these men and women... Would leave today different than how they came in, knowing that life, eternal life, has been freely given to them and they can live differently now. Thank you, Lord, that you have ended Satan's grip upon our lives, the old covenants condemnation of our lives and finish the redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.